Hi, and welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we will be continuing our discussion of Stephen King's 1986 big ass horror novel, It. Now let's get to the Barons. So chapter 10 comes next in part three. Uh, we get Bill. He's in a hotel room in Derry. He's got Mike Hanlon on the phone, and they're arranging like a get-together, a reunion. Mike shares that Stanley is dead, but doesn't elaborate on the details. And they all head down uh, to this restaurant, and they get a private room at this restaurant for their reunion. And uh, during, this, during the cab ride, cab ride over... He gets in with this little character named Dave, who keeps saying, pardon my French if you're a religious man, every time he like curses, which is quite frequently, which I just thought was a really interesting little tick he gave this like fairly throwaway character. I thought it was great. Yeah, this this I, w- I want to start saying this within the podcast now. Anytime <laughs> that you curse, I'm going to try to catch you with it. I'm going to try yeah. to say, uh, Pardon, pardon your French if you're a religious man. <laughs> I guess I have to say it for myself. Yeah, just anytime, anytime either of us curses now, we need to say that. <laughs> just, just a quick eight words. <laughs> it works for the audience, too. I feel like the audience will appreciate that. That's right. You know? It gives them a little heads up. We might be able to take our explicit tag off <laughs> our podcast. Uh, yeah, so he rides through the town with, uh, with Dave, who keeps pardoning his French. And uh, he sees all the changes that Derry has undergone. Um, he sees places that have been torn down and replaced with new buildings. Um, seems like there's been a lot of growth, but there is a few um, a few places that still stand that he remembers from being a kid, um, like the standpipe, the canal, that sort of thing. And finally, they arrive at the restaurant, heads in. And we get the first meeting of the Losers Club as adults. And heading in, uh, Bill had this moment that I thought was really cool that Stephen King threaded in, where he didn't know that he wanted to see all of his childhood friends grown up. He was he knew that he I mean, he's been balding and he's kind of got I mean, everybody kind of gets, you know, they get old, they get bigger. And uh, he's gotten to that point and he didn't want to see his friends not in their perfect states. And then as he walks through the threshold, for some magical reason he sees them all as children again as he remembers them for a slight second and before he sees them for who they actually are yeah uh king's blurring the lines between something actually magical happening and then like a moment that just seems kind of magical and it's that nice kind of ambiguity where it's kind of up to you to decide whether or not there is something magical at play in this moment See, they they reconnect and start telling each other what's been going on with their lives. They talk about their successes and, you know, who's gotten married and so forth. 
Um, Richie makes everyone laugh doing some voices, and they all start drinking some alcohol. Some more ill-advised voices. Yeah. A couple, I think, right? I, yeah, it's like they're a little better, but not not much. Um, it seems like they they have a little bit more of like a professional shine on them, but it's also stuff that like w- it flew in the eighties, but I think today would be uh, pretty offensive, considered pretty offensive, for good reason. And then we get Ben, who tells the story of how he got skinny, and that's kind of everyone's curious about that. Like he 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 he's someone says he looks like a model now, um, and he tells the story of when he was a kid after the events of the novel after they defeated it the first time he remembers some boys doing something with that he calls fat paddling where they were like slapping it like slapping his stomach and like beating him and uh then he goes he runs and the 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 gym coach kind of catches them runs like tells them all to leave basically tells ben to shut up body shames him and then Ben gets pissed and says, you know what? I'm going to come back and I'm going to run track and I'm going to beat your fastest, your fastest person. And, uh, you know, he has this kind of confrontation with the, with the coach and the coach doesn't know what to make of him and kind of says, all right, kid, whatever you want. But the coach is a real asshole. And then, uh, we, we find out that he does that. He, he like, uh, starts running, he starts, uh, eating salad and then he comes back, wins, wins a race and uh, gets punched by the coach. I think it's crazy that in the 50s that adults were this outwardly abusive towards kids. <laughs> yeah. Ben goes through some stuff, and I've said it over and over, but this guy's a badass, like, through and through. He pushes through adversity. He's just, like, such a likable, relatable character. Like, he has a lot of issues, and every single time he stands up to, to whatever comes through. This reminds me of something that I wanted to try and see if I can put to words. I was thinking about this novel, and how a lot of people say this is uh, Stephen King's like coming of age tale, and I think that that holds true. It really is. But more than that, I think this novel is about looking at all the adult quote unquote things that children have to deal with that their parents don't know about, like the secret lives of children and all the like terrible parts of the world that. It's like often the worst of humanity that children often face, you know, whether that's abuse from their own parents or neglect or bullies. And when, when you're, when you're a kid, you don't have any of your maturity or intelligence or experience that you have as an adult to like handle these things. So not only are you experiencing some of the worst parts of humanity, but you also aren't equipped to deal with it. And I think this novel really does a great job of exploring that. The adults are cruel, but just think of kids at that age. Like kids are, kids being cruel to kids is like a very common thing, and they're the most cruel people. They they don't understand social norms or boundaries yet. They just like, they learn certain things that are are hurtful, and they see that they can be, I guess, powerful in those situations when they're less powerful in more adult situations, and they take it out on each other. And it can be pretty vicious with kids. And I think he definitely highlights that as well as the fact that. And, and that's something that parents, they're like, oh, kids get picked on and stuff, but they don't think about how vicious it can be and how, like, life-changing and, and it can set you down a path almost. So I think it's cool that, that King is really going and showing, like you're saying, like, it's like the unseen world of kids that they have to deal with these things that people just kind of assume it's like a, it's something that everybody goes through. A lot of people forget 
I think, about their own struggles as children and assume that life is really easy for children. Like it's it's like a lot of people don't think about that stuff now. And I think I think he's trying to highlight it. But since this section's focusing on the adults, that's the other part of this novel that I think is just as important. I think it's a lot about how our past defines us, who, you know, in a way, like defines who we are as adults, how we carry a lot of our trauma with us, and about, I don't know, as someone who lives really far away from where I grew up, I can really identify with the idea of going back to a place that you grew up in and kind of reverting or almost becoming younger in your mind. Like you, you kind of go back to being a kid a little bit and it's weird in like weird ways. And it's being faced with everything that you remember from your childhood. Um, and I think we're getting that through all the characters and, and each in their own way. And I like that you said that this is one of Stephen King's coming of age stories and I think that those are some timeless stories like this. When we first started reading this novel, I, I got ideas of, you know, Stephen King's Stand By Me. And I got ideas of The Goonies is one for me that like it really makes me think of these kids mm. kind of like scrappy kids coming together to defeat something or, or deal with like an adult situation. Yeah, I mean, the, I think uh, pop culture, the his fingerprints are on pop culture um, between him and Steven Spielberg and The Goonies. A lot of these like children in the 80s stories, when we think of them, we're thinking of King's work and, and that kind of stuff. And like, you know, a show like Stranger Things that's out right now, um, obviously leans heavily on Stephen King. Like it kind of wears it on its sleeve that that's a big inspiration. They even like name drop a couple Stephen King or at least one Stephen King story in the first season. Anyway, let's get back to it. Mike reveals how that Stan killed himself and how. And everyone kind of is shocked by it, but Bill says that he thinks that Stan decided to die and stay clean rather than live and get dirty. Because he remembers him being this like fastidious, always wanting everything orderly child. And he, I guess that's how he's explaining why he thinks he understands why Stan couldn't come back. I think it's interesting that, that Stan isn't there as an adult, and for the points that you're making there he doesn't think that he can handle it. So he just thinks that it's more orderly and he, it's something that's in his control to kill himself. Right. Right. So he yeah. decides to kill himself because it's something within his control. It's something that he can keep orderly. And yet it's because of the fact that he couldn't deal with going back and not having control over situations, especially as an adult, he was going back into situations where he'd be dealing with things that he couldn't control as a kid and he would still have as much control over the situation, which is none. Yeah. I, I was, I was brought back to the part where, Stan has told his story about the standpipe and he mentions that it's like an affront to the natural order like he 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 has this moment where it's like he can't bear how crazy it all is and that to me was the like king laying the groundwork for why Stan kills himself he essentially just can't handle a world in which magic is real and there's monsters and all the neat orderly things that he takes comfort in like fall apart. Anyway, so Mike um Mike tells them that the murders have started again. And he tells them about Adrian Mellon. He starts listing off children who have died in different brutal ways. He mentions the Bradley gang, which we find out more about later. Uh he talks about animal mutilations, lynchings, 
These are all things that happened in the past. Um, loggers dead in a cabin, on and on. He's done a lot of research, and he's found that crime escalates every 27 years or so. And he thinks that over time it's been getting worse as dairy kind of grows in population. But he does say that last time in 1958, somehow they halted it before it could, like, finish its course, which usually ends in some sort of big catastrophe, we've heard. Um, but they, none of them can still remember what they did, although Mike seems to remember at least most of it. But he doesn't share it. He kind of wants them to come about it naturally on their own. And uh, he ends by showing them a picture of Georgie that was found recently on a, on a new victim's body. And he shows that to Bill and kind of it uh, chills everybody. And uh, yeah, they, he mentions they arrested a hermit for the murders. Oh, and I did want to talk about this. The, her the hermit says that he, he saw lights in the woods. And then they find out that the final fifth grader had been ripped apart and the words come home, come home, come home were written in blood. I think that it is pulling them back. The, the picture of Georgie, the come home, come home, come home. I think that it's just it pulling them, them back. He knew that they would always come back. He knew that he was influenced. I think that he had influence over Mike and what Mike was able to hear and the things that he was able to like find. I think that it was manipulating him into into eventually coming to the conclusion that he needed to bring them back because somehow they defeated it and he felt cheated and he needs them to come back because he has to finish what he started basically. A couple of points I was thinking about um, all of those things that that Mike was referencing the the logging, the Bradley gang, these are all things that I think I assume reading through that will become clear as we read more into the interlude. Like more of the interludes obviously will be like kind of encompassing what those things that he just mentioned. Something else that we didn't talk about is that Mike made the point that there were seven of them before and they made some sort of circle. That's and right. At this time without Stan they were going to need to make a smaller circle. So there's some sort of ritual, and I'm assuming the turtle has something to do with it. <laughs> Eventually, we're going to find out. Yeah. We'll, well, I think we'll talk more about the turtle at the end, because we have a bit of feedback about the turtle. Uh, we'll save that. Um, yeah, it, it, that's a good point. They do say that he, Mike says that he doesn't even know if this thing's going to work now, because they're not all there. And so it throws it into kind of uh, doubt. Like, we immediately feel like, oh, we're down a man. This is now... Um, got a less of a shot of working than it did before. Uh, we learned that each of the Losers Club is actually quite well off as an adult. Is this something, by the way, I wanted to ask you, is this something that Pat, like crossed through your mind? Yeah, I think it, when when they were talking about this, and also we're going to get to the infertility in a second. Yeah. The fact that they were all rich, I feel like that had something to do with, like, they bested this thing when they were kids and they, they deserve some sort of compensation from the natural order of the universe or something like they, they had to deal with this awful evil. And it was just like, because of that, they all ended up being well off because they kind of deserved it or something. I'm not really sure what to make yeah. of that, but I definitely thought it was interesting. I, I think, I mean, I, I think that any read is, is, is valid here. Um, my read I think was that, they learned a lot of valuable lessons about standing up to evil and kind of not taking no for an answer. And, and, and maybe he's making a point about how those lessons helped them to be effective in the, in the like world of, you know, getting money. 
Mm-hmm. But we also got like a hint that there was a lot of luck involved with some of it. So maybe it's like a combination of the two. They're really they became like really go getters, and then also they got really lucky. But yeah, we do also learn that they're all they all seem to have some sort of infertility that they can't have children. None of them have children. I think that has something to do with it. Like I think the infertility thing is less the cosmic order or whatever. I think it is making it so that they didn't have any because if they had kids, they wouldn't go back to dairy, right? Right. Probably not. Um, well, one last thing for this part. Uh, Mike mentions almost everything, but it says he can't remember it all. And then he mentions the deadlights, which makes Bill, like, jump and have, like, goose flesh on his arms. What do you think of that? So it was the deadlights, you said? Yeah, the deadlights. I don't know what to make of it. I, I know that it's something that will come back, show back up. So, so say like kind of talk more about it and then I'll kind of, cause I'm trying to remember which part you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. So Mike, he, I forget exactly how he says it. He just, he's, he, I think he's rattling off things that he remembers and he says something like, I remember something about deadlights and Bill just like has this like really strong reaction to the word. It made me think about what we had just heard with the, with the, um, hermit that got arrested who had mentioned that he saw lights floating in the woods. So uh, I know a little bit more about the deadlights, so I don't want to like do a lot of speculation. I knew but... like when I read it, I, I was like, that's a thing. I just didn't, I didn't know. I don't know what to make of it. I don't know that there's a the specific thing that I can point to as to what that would be. It's it related, but I don't know. Yeah. I say, keep your, keep your eye on it. I do have a little bit more I want to talk about later with regards to them. So we'll, we'll get into it. Mike says that he thinks everyone will eventually remember everything. They did something, and nobody can remember what exactly it was. And then, uh, oh, we get the first time that someone says, beep, beep, Richie, to Richie. It was like this thing that they'd forgotten. I'm amazed yeah. at how far along into this novel we get before we hear the words, beep, beep, Richie. And there's a few things like that that I thought were like throughout the entire novel, but we don't get until mid, like almost the midpoint now. Yeah, I thought that was funny, like a cool little, like that's that's something in a group within a group of somebody who's annoying you that would be a natural progression to be like just come on shut up we don't want to hear it anymore we know that you're it's a coping mechanism or it's something that you do to be funny but it's like letting him know he's gone a little too far to like dial it back yeah and and, and, uh they take a vote and all unanimously vote that they're going to stay and they're going to try and kill it oh another thing is the each of them tell that they're telling stories and uh when they're telling about their fertility they talk about how some of them have tried and that kind of thing and richie has this vasectomy story mm, where the yeah. odds of the odds of his vasect he had a vasectomy and the odds of it healing itself there's like sometimes it just um like pretty astronomical right yeah there's like there's like insane odds of it happening and it healed on its own yeah uh and then come to find out he had been he had thought that he had a vasectomy and he was having sex with all these these women and uh, none of them ever became pregnant without protection, even though, without protection. <laughs> and none of them ever became pregnant, even though he did the vasectomy healed itself. So I think that's more of just it's black magic. Yeah. He's kind of just like blocking any sort of thing that will deter them from coming back in the future. So next up, they uh, they all decide it's time to split up and wander through town. But then at the end of the dinner, they uh, decide they're going to open up their fortune cookies, right? Richie also begins to tell a story, but then he says, no, 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 that was a dream. And he claims that he never actually encountered it before, that he's the only one who didn't. But we kind of get a sense that maybe that's not true. Uh, But we don't get the story here. 
Um, and then, yeah, they all get their uh, fortune cookies, and I got a quick list. Uh, blood spurts out of Bev's. A bug comes out of Eddie's. Richie sees a human eye in his. Ben's has, like, got dislodged teeth in there. Bill's um, starts to, like, bulge and, like, beat, like, a beating heart almost. And, and, and it's, like, something alive is in there. And the the waitress comes in, and Bill kind of tells everyone to, like, basically be cool. And they all kind of act like nothing's going on, and it's clear that she can't see any of this. But, um she leaves and then bills cracks open and uh, a big fly big gray fly comes out and he mentions that he had just seen the movie the fly and that it scared him and he thinks that's why so it's again kind of a moment where they're talking about how it is preying on their fears yeah each of them it's it's like their kids again and each of their fears is showing back up i was kind of bummed that that bill denbro doesn't like the fly he said something he kind of trashed he kind of said like oh it's it was a kind of he's like it was an all right movie but it kind of stuck with me i bet i bet that's king's opinion i know come on stephen king you don't like david cronenberg's like the fly it's such a classic like that's a that's a big movie like that's that's a big one to especially a genre guy like like stephen king not liking the fly kind of surprised me isn't that jeff goldblum yes yeah so i mean it's got a young jeff goldblum goldblum what more could you want exactly um so yeah they so they i they decide they're all going to go and wander off alone and walk through the town and i do like that king lampshades this by saying like this is clearly a bad idea and some of us might even die doing it but he like also we like mike feels like we have to do it and they all feel like it's some part of it so it's it, to me it's he's just lampshading it but it feels to me a little bit like a contrivance to get them all out on their own. But, um, you know, it it works. Just it, I, I just am willing to be like, okay, I guess they have to do this. What did you, did it bother you at all? I thought it was weird to have them because I think, I think Bev is the one who's like, wait, why are we splitting up? And I was like, exactly. Why are you splitting up? <laughs> why would you ever do that? <laughs> if there's certain things that you guys need to go see, go see them as a group. You guys did that when you were kids. And the whole point of you guys being in a group all the time when you were kids is to kind of combat the fact that there's a crazy killer demon clown thing but i mean i did like getting them on their own the thing with yeah the sections were good but the getting them there was a little like odd it was just kind of like mike going this is part of it and then they're all like okay well i feel like there's a lot of that going on like mike yeah. just like throughout the rest of this this part here that we're gonna be talking about um we get mike and he just keeps repeatedly being like yeah this is just the way it goes or or this was i just knew that this was gonna happen and he just seems to be like this clairvoyant being now instead of being like some kid that stayed behind a dare and i know he does a lot of reading and he knows the the town history and that kind of thing so the first walk we get is ben he's out walking through town aimlessly doesn't know where he's going he remembers uh using silver dollars for something he remembers the word chud or should and he sees um he kind of has a vision of a turtle it's very weird and it's very brief um but he just has this momentary thought of a turtle and then he arrives at the library which he has this moment of standing out and looking at the tunnel that essentially connected the two two uh parts of the building and thinking about it and from like an architectural point of view and just how like beautiful it is and the way it like uh shines against the background 
and he kind of has a, it's like a moment of like an architect looking at a building and really appreciating it for its design and then we get what i would call like a love letter to a library description from stephen king when he describes this thing and you can tell that this is someone who's spent a lot of time in a library and really thinks they're kind of a magical place and uh then we get uh, Billy Goat's Gruff being told again to the children. The exact same story from his previous flashback about a tro- about a troll under a bridge. And we get a we get a. I think it, it, King is making a point here about this this little story being pretty important to uh, what we're reading. I like that Ben's character. I like that the, the library is such an important facet of his character, and that like you were saying, I like that King kind of puts. A, it almost feels like every single one of his characters or his main characters at least he's putting a piece of himself into them like ben has like like obviously bill would probably be the closest to him but every it seems like every character has something and i think a lot of authors you could probably speak to that i don't know if do you feel like that's something that you do put yourself into the characters yeah i mean i think i think you have to do that um because you're you're creating a person and you're drawing on your own life experiences to do that and so it's almost impossible to to not do that, especially if you want to do it well. So yeah, I think every character any author has ever written, even the bad ones, a, a little piece of them is in there. Something something authentic is what goes into that character, and uh, is the kind of character is built around that. So it's just like a like a characteristic or a trait or. Obviously, with in Bill's case, it'd be more than that. It kind of seems like that would be almost like a one for one. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it's one for one, but it's, it's. Um, I think with Bill, it's the more unusual thing that it's like identifiable descriptors. Like we can say he's a writer. He's, you know what I mean. This and that, A, B, and C are all the same as King. But for a lot of characters, it's not going to be that. It's just going to be minor things, uh, some way of looking at the world, something that, like, maybe even you don't do it all the time, but you've done before. And it could be, you could be basing it off of someone you've met, but you often have to understand it well enough to get in their head that um, there's normally a piece of it. And it's weird because, like, it sounds like, I'm trying to say that like all writers are like secretly evil and and can have all these really terrible things, but I think it's it's more mundane than that. It's more about the humanity and the the recognizable human things in every one of these characters that you latch onto often comes from a really genuine place. If that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It's it, you can see it in a lot of like I feel like the issue comes when people will read a book and they'll just assume that it's the author. And so if the, the like in Richie's case, if people will get offended by Richie doing like blatantly racist um, voices and things like that, it's not King. Like the King isn't saying that's how he feels. You know what I mean? But yeah. like they will thread in like in most situations, I feel like you can kind of see where an author will like favor a character and they'll, they'll find themselves closer to that character. And you can kind of see characteristics that they thread into it could like in your mind you can draw parallels to them as a person yeah it's a really messy thing to to get into honestly because there is a lot of weird overlap but i agree just because a character does something doesn't mean that the author like is like co-signing that he thinks it's okay um it's more just that that's something that the author is aware of and is is using in his story so yeah i like that that ben's character like the kind of the thing that they keep going back to is that he created this BBC building 
and it's like one of the facets of the BBC building he he copied from the library that he loved so much. So I think it's cool that his success is is owed to the fact that he was in that library a lot and it like comes from and I think that's just a cool way to to build a character to have to show the progression of this happened so then this happened so he was at the library a lot and he enjoyed this section of it and so he was successful later because he replicated it in the, in a bigger sense for this bbc yeah. building and nobody sees the the connection except for like mike and a few others yeah that's that's a good observation i like that so in the library he uh gets a, a library card he interacts with the young librarian and uh it pennywise shows up on top of the like the some of the bookshelves and starts yelling at him and like trying to draw attention and like no one else can hear him only ben can and he's holding a he's holding balloons in one hand and a book in the other and he says he's got a book for him and he's basically just like taunting him and calling him fat and all this stuff and then he starts to turn into dracula and chop his like bite his own lips off he asks he asks stan or sorry he asks ben what stan saw before he died and he kind of hints that maybe he he showed Stan something. Now, do you think that that's do you think that that's Pennywise just taking credit for something, or do you think that that actually happened that he somehow showed Stan something? If I had to guess, I would think that it was it was Pennywise taking credit for it. Yeah, but he could have had some influence. I, we're not sure. Obviously, it's it's kind of ambiguous. But I, I, the way I saw it was he was kind of just taking it because Stan was the guy who wanted to take it into his own hands. So he took his own life and like, I don't know, maybe he was pushed into that. Yeah, he kind of does the same thing when he talks about how the old librarian died. He said that she, uh, like um, Ben learns that she had a stroke and he says, oh, that was me. And so we don't know like if that's true or if he's just taking credit for all these things to make himself seem even more powerful than he already is. Yeah, in this section we start to get, like, we get a lot more Pennywise, and I think it's cool because before he was kind of this, like, shadowy figure that was doing things in the background, and now we're getting them face-to-face with the characters, and the first time that we're seeing them talk to Pennywise is as adults, so we're not, we haven't seen them with their encounters as kids, because he knows them, obviously, he knows them each individually. Yeah. from their first encounters and then whatever happened that we don't know yet when they were kids so something that i like is that they have to keep up appearances and like pennywise is like egging them on and kind of taunting them because he's in the library and he's like Shh. yeah he can't let on <laughs> he's shouting pennywise is shouting at him and stuff in a library where everybody's silent and ben is struggling with the fact that he wants to scream back but everybody will think he's a psycho because nobody else can hear pennywise and uh, yeah. the same thing happened with the waitress when they were at that restaurant with the fortune cookies. Uh, the, they all had to, even though there was like blood gushing out of the fortune cookies and flies were coming out of the fortune cookies, they all, when the waitress was coming back, they all had to like act like nothing happened and that uh, Eddie was just having an asthma attack that he cured with his, his inhaler. Right. So this section ends with him realizing that the book he's been holding all along that he didn't even know is the same book he took out on the day he was originally attacked by Henry Bowers and got the H carved into his stomach. And it's even got like a boot print on it and stuff. It's like the same library book that he checked out. So it's 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 linking Pennywise is linking the present to the past. And we, we I don't know, I felt like it was something to do with Pennywise, but maybe it's some other force. I I don't know. What did you make of him having that book? I thought it was Pennywise messing with him. I think that the book was left behind. We don't know how it was returned to the library. Maybe Pennywise dropped it in the drop box, you know, in the return box. And uh, 
<laughs> I could just see Pennywise the clown returning a book at the library. But uh, I think that maybe he was taunting him again. He was like, remember when you were a kid and I would terrify you, make sure you still remember that kind of thing yeah. by giving him the same book. So, so that's the end of Ben's, Ben's uh, little section there. And then we get on to Eddie who is also similarly walking. He's just kind of walking through neighborhoods and he sees all these old houses and he remembers playing at them. And he arrives at this field that he remembers playing baseball in. And I, I have written here just I, how struck I was with King's eye slash ear slash nose for evocative details. And his ability to create a world that feel that feels lived in and it feels so like when he's describing all this stuff i I was amazed at how much i it just transported me to that place and i noticed that he had now this is kind of a writer thing but it's something that stood out to me he would often give a detail and then give like a qualifier about that detail whereas i think a lot of other writers wouldn't do that um so my example is he mentions that Eddie sees all this glittering broken glass from smashed beer bottles and Coke bottles. And he could have just stopped there. You see the detail. But then he says, in the old days, such things were religiously removed. And that second qualifier is like the character perceives a detail and then King adds that second sentence to get the character the character is reacting and thinking about what he's seeing and that is something that to me i was quite impressed with because it it works on multiple levels in 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 evoking the character and making that detail really work and 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 sing in a way that it wouldn't if it was just on its own otherwise it's just like i'm listing off things this is what this is what he sees and instead we know something more about the scene like you're saying, I think the broken glass was interesting specifically for the fact that it was Eddie that saw the broken glass with the with it, right? Pennywise, yeah. the homeless Pennywise. Uh, when he lo- when he took on the guise of the homeless, right? Man. He was underneath underneath the the house. There was like glass and stuff. So yeah, but the detail that he brings is just it's it's masterful. It's crazy. Like you're saying, he takes these details and then he puts them into context so that only a character. So it's an experience that a character has had. And that's why it's so precise, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I definitely can appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I hope that's interesting for more people than just writers. But as a writer, I thought that was really, really like I was I was taking notes and going like, remember to do this because <laughs> it's it's impressive stuff. So then we get Eddie remembering that Belch Huggins used to play baseball there and he was pretty dumb, but mean. And I think dumb, but mean is a really good description of a lot of uh, Kings, like more villainous characters there's so many dumb mean characters in his books and especially this book Um, because you can kind of describe all of them all the bullies that way and um yeah so so we find that belch hit a hit a homer basically hit it over the fence hit it so hard that the ball unraveled and then um eddie uh gets to the fence looks down into the barrens starts thinking about being a kid and playing baseball there when all of a sudden he just like catches something gets thrown at him and he looks up and he sees it, he sees it and it's basically a mix between Belch Huggins the leper from underneath the house on Kneebolt Street and Pennywise 
and he's wearing a baseball uniform. <laughs> so it's kind of a lot going on there, but it's really interesting because it's like all these like zombified um, spirits start to come up and like one even bursts out of the ground like a gopher and they all start coming towards him and it comes up to the fence and starts climbing over it and he, he just is like running away and one thing I thought was really interesting detail is that at one point the thing that is climbing over the fence just like winks out of existence and he hears this loud popping sound as the air that's described the air like closing in to where this thing used to be which I think is another good sign that what's happening isn't um, something he's purely imagining there actually does take up like a physical it, do, it takes up space in the world Pennywise is like this really interesting creature because he's this clown and he keeps talking about how and I think in Bev's chapter we get a little more on it but he keeps talking about how he has a different he has different names and I think it's interesting because he seems like this supernatural being but I think that there's like subtext of like some sort of history that he was like maybe he was killed in like an awful way and that's why he haunts this area or something like that I don't think it's that specific but mm. when they talked about him popping out of existence and the air filling that that section that he was in I think that that's like his way of saying like this isn't just like something that people he's not just giving them visions there's like something that's physically like there and it's dangerous mm -hmm. and eventually they'll have to deal with it now I don't know if I made this connection the first time but did you make any did you uh, think at all about how like a balloon when popped essentially we hear the sound of the air like escaping and that how the description of it popping out of existence was very similar to a balloon. I didn't make that connection. That's interesting to think about, though. That's cool. That's like because he keeps and he's leaving these these balloons behind that keep popping for, for, for each right. of the characters in the walk. Like I think with Ben, he, we got a balloon that spun around and it said like I killed the librarian. The one for the one that's left behind for Eddie says something about how his his inhaler his asthmatic med medication is going to give him cancer oh that's right yeah it gives cancer that's true so I, I don't know i like the idea that it was like that a balloon noise though that's cool i didn't think about that yeah i have a theory about that but i i don't want to because i can't help but use some of the knowledge i have from having read this book before so i don't want to like put words to it in case that's something that you would you would come across naturally we'll see maybe maybe in the next episode i'll talk about it so so next uh, so Eddie runs away and escapes, um, and then next we get Bev, and this is a really this is a really in like this is a part that stands out in my memory of this book, this section right here, and it's, there's like a few you know like really just parts that I like feel like I'll never forget, and this is one of them. So she goes to her father's or what she thinks might be her father's place she doesn't know for sure that if he is there she hasn't talked to him in years and she sees um what she thinks is the name marsh and goes up and kind of knocks at the door or rings the doorbell and an old woman opens it up and she she says oh she realizes that it wasn't actually marsh it was it was something else and the old woman tells her a story about how um her father's been dead for five years invites her in for tea and she goes in, and uh, Bev starts to look around the house. The woman says it's fine. And um, she goes into the bathroom. Or it's an apartment, I think, not a house, but regardless. She sees the bathroom where the blood sprayed out as a kid. 
And then she comes back out and starts talking with the woman again. And she starts to focus on how the woman's teeth are like crooked and like really like strangely white. And then as she's looking at the woman, she starts to look older. And um, the woman mentions in, in a story that her father was someone named Robert Gray. Or, and um, we, we find out basically that that's Pennywise. And uh, because he had said that before, I think. He said when he, I think at the very beginning of the book, when he introduced himself to, to Georgie, he said that, that Bob Gray or Robert Gray was one of his other names. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know what to make of that really here, but, but yeah, we do get a connection that she's kind of claiming that that's her father. And this woman kind of transforms into a witch before Bev's eyes and everything starts to like, just go crazy. Um, like the, like the table turns to like fudge and she starts to get this like feeling like she's in a gingerbread house. Also, she realizes that her teacup is full of shit and she's been like sipping at it. And, um, all of a sudden the witch transforms into her father and starts like making all these like really creepy pedophilic, you know, sexual statements at her and, it's just like a terrifying scene to me that is is really like also like um insane like it 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 takes you and it puts you in a moment where you can't get a ground like you can't be like you're like what's real what's even happening here and um she finally she runs out and uh almost gets hit by a car and she gets across the street and kind of looks back and sees that um everything kind of looks normal again and she even wonders like did she even go in like or was that all something that just kind of happened in her mind and then uh yeah again she sees a balloon at the end of this section i thought this was cool because they were bringing up the old um fairy tale the the whole house was turning into like the the candy land area or whatever from yeah. the hansel and gretel story and i she she talked about how she feared like that was a, the story that like scared her as a child and so he just he he knows such an immense amount of their fears that it makes me think that like he's like because it's probably stuff that they've never voiced it's just stuff that they've thought about so he's in their heads he knows their thoughts which could potentially stop if he knows their thoughts that means that if they try to stop him in certain ways maybe he will be able to like preemptively stop them from doing that because he knows i don't i'm not really sure how like logistically how that works out in the previous section with Ben, there's a moment where Ben thinks something at him, at Pennywise, and then Pennywise responds to it. Because Ben couldn't speak out loud, yeah. Yeah, so we've had proof that he can literally le- read their minds. Right, which is even more terrifying. Yeah. So Pennywise was this witch. I, that's how I That's how I was reading into it. And there was like a chest in, in the house that had the, the initials, what was it, Bob... What was the last name? Gray. So it'd Gray, be BG. Yeah. I believe it? it had the the initials BG on it. So, like I was saying before, there's like I think there's some sort of story with Pennywise having been some, an actual character, and yeah. if Pennywise was the witch, she, she the witch kept saying that her father was Bob Gray. So it was Bob Gray, Pennywise's father, and he's like taking on this persona of like a clown because that was like what his dad was and his dad mistreated him or something and now he's haunting this area i just i think that there's like things that that king is is adding to try to build like a a back story for for pennywise there is there does seem to be something special about this name but 
it does. We also have to remember that, by all accounts, from Mike's history, that it is like really, really old, possibly even predating his uh, dairy. So I don't know. It's it's interesting. It's like how does those how do those two things line up? Is like an open question. All right. So next we get uh, Richie, and he goes to the Paul Bunyan statue on his block. And he sits down at it, and he remembers uh, he remembers running into a, a mall to get away from the three bullies. And he remembers kind of giving him the slip and like making him think that he went out this door. And then he kind of he remembers as a kid he walked out and sat down in front of this Paul Bunyan statue, and had this moment where the statue turns and looks at him, and then he like just barely jumps off of the like bench before the big axe that Paul Bunyan is wielding starts like crashing into the ground after him. And essentially the, the giant chased him trying to like chop him in half with his giant axe. And then all of a sudden, like everything returned to normal and like the park bench wasn't cut up or anything. And so Richie, this is what Richie has convinced himself was a dream because kid Richie saw that everything was back to normal and thought, well, okay. Well, I just imagined that. This is the like Richie was trying to cover up the fact that he had he had encountered Pennywise just like all the other kids before, and when he goes back to the statue, he encounters it again, and then I think it's in his mind it's it's now confirmed that that was not a dream. Um, yeah, because I mean that's what happens as an adult. Um, he looks up, and instead of a statue of Paul Bunyan, now it's a statue of Pennywise. Something really interesting from this section that you actually mentioned before was um, Pennywise's powers seem like limitless at some times, and we've talked about how he can read minds. And um, in order to get away this time without realizing it, Richie again uses a, one of those, I think it was a really racist voice this time again, but he uses <laughs> yeah. it to distract. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He uses it to distract Pennywise, and Pennywise takes offense to it. Not offense, because it's a racially provoked thing, but offense to <laughs> no, it, because it's like he's making fun of him a little bit. He's standing he's like, up to him, and, right. and yeah. So, and then after that happens, Pennywise gets a little angrier than we've seen him towards the kids, because he's been messing with them up until now, and he starts talking about how he can give Richie different kinds of cancer, and how he can give him a heart attack, and all of these things, and then Richie is convinced in his head, Richie's like, I think he probably actually could. So we don't know if that's just a fear that Richie has or if like Pennywise has the ability to just give people diseases or like with the with the librarian, did he actually give that woman a stroke or was right. it just him taking credit? So it is. an I think it is an open question because he yeah, we don't know. Maybe he can do that. I mean, how can you beat somebody who can just give you a heart attack if you walk towards him? Yeah. And like, why isn't he killing them if that's the case? Like, why? Why doesn't he just kill them all right away? So it's it, there's a lot, yeah. It's like he wants maybe he wants to torment them. I think it has something to do with the stuff that Mike's talking about, where Mike is saying that it the cycle starts with something huge and then builds, and people are dying throughout, and then ends with another huge like death toll or something like that. So maybe he's trying to play them into a trap to where he can kill a bunch of them all together and kill a lot of people. But hopefully the losers club has some have something to say about that <laughs> yeah i mean so we also get uh talk about uh, this like eye monster that he saw as a kid in a movie that everyone else thought was like really silly but we learned that basically he has like a hang up about eyes because he used to wear glasses now he has contacts and he starts getting this like eye pain and um 
his section actually ends with him like blinking out the contacts, but then he can't find them. They're just like gone. Um, but yeah, we, we learned that there's this like tentacled eye monster that he's really afraid of. And, uh, when Pennywise is leaving, he says, Oh, we have that monster down below the city and like all that stuff. So he's also telling all of them he's when he's encountering all, all of them on their walks, he's telling them to leave still. He's, t- he's trying to scare them away, which is interesting because maybe he is afraid that they'll do what they did again. He's worried that they'll stop him again. But he keeps telling them all to leave. He told Ben to leave. He told Bev to leave and Richie now to leave. Yeah, I mean, but then he also does say, like, come on down. Like, it's like it's like a, he does both. He tells them, like, the, you know, you should just run away. And then but then other times he'll be like, come on down. I have the, the monster down here and all this stuff. So it's like he's trying to maybe he's trying to put on a front that he's not worried but maybe he is worried um okay so next we get bill who uh he goes to the sewer and basically challenges pennywise he basically says come on out down you know into the sewer grate and as he's doing that this like kid with a skateboard sees him and there's this interesting interaction he has with this kid where he asks if he can like borrow his skateboard and in the, we get an idea that he sees this kid's skateboard like he once saw silver his bike that he would use to escape and he thinks this it's like this tie to childhood and the maybe the freedom of childhood um and he also gives the boy a lot of advice about how he needs to like stay away from the sewers and stay away from the barons we get uh we get a part where the boy says that his friend claims to have seen the shark from jaws in the barons and like he doesn't believe it but then bill's like uh yeah stay away from the barons so it's clear that like bill believes it and i just thought that would have been really interesting like to see the a giant shark i don't know yeah it doesn't he doesn't discriminate based on decade he's he's ready for whatever pop cultural scares come along he's like jaws got him freddy got him jason yeah. got him so i'm sure he's he's terrifying all kinds of kids throughout the God. 80s with stuff like that yeah which just makes me like want there to be another 27 years go by and see like Maybe we'll get that in the in the second movie or something. Yeah, isn't that just like, Stranger Things though? Isn't aren't we? Yeah, you're, isn't Stranger Things twenty seven? It's it twenty seven years later. Yeah, but but that's still the eighties. Like, I, like, what would it do in modern day? I feel like we could probably spend twenty minutes talking about that. But like modern day scares. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> all right. So instead of getting into that, let's just keep moving. He eventually meets this other kid who is carrying a doll, and she tells him about a secondhand clothes store which he goes to and then he finds his old bike is in the window and he decides he's going to buy it and uh once he buys it he feels like it lessens his stutter some and uh calls up mike hanlon and finds out if he can leave the bike at his house mike kind of says okay sure and intuits that it's silver not just any old bike and he leaves the store and he goes up to mike's place and he fixes it up in the uh in the in the garage and then they um kind of in kind of a weird moment like a deck of cards falls on the ground and only two ace of spades pop up from like two different decks and they're both like how is this even possible and he picks up those those uh cards and he puts them in the spokes of the of the bike like he did when he was a kid he also remembers this phrase (laughs) and the phrase the phrase uh the phrase i have it written here where is it Ah, here it is. He thrusts his fists against the posts and still insists he sees the ghosts. It's a hard it's a hard phrase to say. There's a lot of S sounds in there. And he mentions it to Mike, and Mike tells him that it's like a really old 
phrase that has been used for a long time but for people who have like stutters or lisps to like work on their voices right and it's something that eddie used to try and say as a kid but he could never say it um but then he has a memory where he says you know i do remember that i said it once but i can't remember what the situation was or why i did so first off what did you make of that and second off i i think before we record every episode we should begin by just like saying that phrase we just (laughs) we should just chant it together yeah just like and yeah just keep chanting it over and over until we're ready i'm sure that everyone love that (laughs) we don't have to record it just i think a person like we should just make it a ritual i think i think we need to be transparent about this i think we record it and we we force our listeners to have five minutes of (laughs) us just repeating it over and over again yeah i want to hear you say it because it's hard say it one more time so i know it he thrusts his fists against the posts and still insists he sees the ghosts. He thrusts his fists against the post and still insists he sees the ghost. Oh, you did it better than me. Like I, I, I feel like I struggle with it more than you did. I was like, I was like, I'm gonna mess this up. So I'm glad <laughs> that I nailed it. Um, I don't know. I think it's interesting. I think it'll come to be something that they taunt. That maybe it's something they chant at at it or Pennywise to to keep him at bay. Maybe it's something to do with the fact that it's such an old phrase. Maybe it's something that has to do with Pennywise's backstory. Maybe it means something to him. Mike knowing everything and like predicting all of these things happening is, is I don't know, shocking. Like how, how could he have possibly known that Bill was going to buy this, this bike again and then it was going to be silver and then he was going to need the cards to put on the spokes. I did want to ask you what you thought of this is the this is the only chapter where we don't get this big Pennywise presence. He doesn't come up and do something to taunt Bill. I think maybe because Bill went to the, the t- went to the sewer to taunt him and and like I think if you want him to show up, he's less likely to show up. Maybe that's mm. at play here. Something that I wanted to say was uh, that when Richie was being was being attacked. He mentioned how funny it would be if he ended up in the hospital and how everybody would show up and that they had all shown up to see Eddie because Eddie was in in the hospital with a broken arm. So I think what I think that we're going to get a scene where Eddie breaks his arm and he's in the hospital for some reason when they're trying to fight it when they were kids. Just wanted to mention that it was something that was kind of thrown in there. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I guess we'll keep an eye out for that. All right, so next up we got chapter 12. And that is Henry Bowers. And we learn that he is in a mental facility. And he can see the moon talking to him. And uh, he hears Victor and Belch like talking to him from the moon. He also hears the different members of the Loser Club, Losers Club like taunting him. And uh, he think, he, we, we learn that he... Back in the uh, after the events of the of what happened in 1958, um, he confessed to murdering all like he confessed to a bunch of the murders, and essentially went to went to this mental facility. Also, he killed his father, and um, he's in this mental facility because basically for the criminally insane. We, and there's a bunch of like other criminally insane people around him, and we learned about this really abusive. Um, uh, one of the abusive guards who I thought so his name's Kuntz which uh, Dean Kuntz and Stephen King are like contemporary horror, horror writers with one another so I thought it was really interesting that there's a character named Kuntz in a Stephen King novel um, 
I don't know. I couldn't find anything on the internet about it when I Googled it. But I wonder if that was like some sort of shot he was taking at him or what that was. You think he, you think he's taking a shot or do you think they're buddies? Well, I know that they're, it's like, um, they're often pitted against each other. I really don't, I can't say whether or not they're friends, but I haven't heard that. And I, and, and in fact, one thing I did read online was that King said that he thought, uh, many of the novels were crappy. <laughs> many of, many of novels, novels were crappy. Were, oh, wow. So something probably... like that, like, or poorly written or something like there was something, I can't remember the exact quote and I should have written it down. But, um, yeah, it was something about, yeah, I don't think King is a huge Kuntz fan, so... I don't know. I just, I don't know if that was on purpose or a complete accident. It's like a weird enough name where I'm like, it feels like it had to have been on purpose. Yeah, I'm sure it was. How did you feel about getting Henry Bowers' point of view? I did not expect that. That's what, <laughs> we were in Henry Bowers' point of view and I was like, this is, this is definitely going to be some sort of situation that the Losers Club have to deal with as adults because it's, you know, it's the 80s and why would we even shoot to him unless he's going to be a factor? So you thought we were done with him as as adults, at least. Kind of, yeah. I thought that maybe he had died from from Pennywise or something when they were kids. So when yeah. we got Henry Bowers, I was like, okay, so he's gonna come and like throw a monkey wrench in the in their plans, probably. Something that we learn is that he's like he's hoeing the ground, and we learn that he confessed to those murders under duress. So he had been getting beaten up by the cops, and they were kind of putting it all on him. Um, he, yeah. I think he did. He said he did kill his dad, but then also confess to the other ones because someone had to take responsibility for the other murders that had been happening yeah. so it might as well be him yeah and he kind of got he, like he kind of got framed by pennywise sounded like yeah maybe because he keeps talking about how he doesn't want to mention this other factor or this other person that that was some sort of influencer was telling him to do certain things yeah and we oh so we also learned that the two other bullies died down in the sewers and specifically, um, Victor got his head ripped off by Frankenstein's monster. Universal. And yeah, there you go. You're right. You're right on it. Universal horror monsters. They're everywhere. I think that, that, I mean, they were huge in the fifties. So I'm sure Stephen King's a huge, that was a lot probably his favorite movies growing up. Probably. And, uh, so we get the ghost of Victor coming out from under his bed and he's got his, literally he's got his head sewn back on. This is Victor as a child, not as an adult. And they kind of say, you got to come back. you got to come back. And um, then it uh, Victor's ghost basically transforms into this, like, eight-foot-tall dog, like, literally like a giant Doberman Pinscher wearing a clown suit. And uh, when the guard, Koontz, comes in, it, like, gets him. And so I, I think he gets killed. We don't really get a confirmation of it, but it seems like maybe, maybe – uh, king is killing off Koontz here so it's another thing to keep in mind <laughs> drama lots of drama going on i i don't know i don't know what to make of it i think it'd be i would think that he would be more humble than that though right like i guess if the, if he genuinely doesn't like him that he would that would kill him off but yeah and it's interesting because like this this is actually a fairly early on novel for for king i i believe i'm not like a i'm not super up on it but you know he was popular, but he wasn't necessarily cemented. He hadn't cemented his legacy yet like he did in the next, like over the next decade as being like the best of all time. And I think especially at the time, there was a lot of debate between him, between him and Koontz. So it was like his direct competitor almost. I don't know. I would be really interested to hear more about that, but right now I'm just reading between the lines. We can ask Stephen King when he comes on the podcast, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'll be, I'll, sure. I'll write that down so that just in case, you know. I'll I'll save the date. Um, so next we get Kay, who is uh, Bev's friend, and we learn and she we have learned that she's all beat up, and she's at this like hospital getting treated, and she kind of goes back and tells the story about how Tom Rogan, um, came to her house, like forced his way inside of her place, and just like beats the shit out of her, demanding to know where Bev is. And finally, she cracks because, I mean, Tom's out of control. He's threatening to kill her. He's got broken glass. He's going to, like, cut her face up. And and she just can't. Like, she, she really, like, holds on for a while. But eventually, she cracks and just reveals to Tom that that Bev is in Derry. And uh, then Tom kind of, like, storms away. And she's so scared that she doesn't even call the police. Um, she, she like, Tom basically threatens her that, that if she calls the police, he's going to, like, make bail and come back and kill her. And we really can see, like, it's it's a it's a sign, I think, that it's not just, like, Bev isn't alone, like, that Tom is just a genuinely scary, out-of-control dude. This is kind of a touchy subject because we're, we, we have this woman, Kay, who was all for Bev leaving Tom, and she was so happy that she finally stood up, and she felt like it took her too long to get out of that abusive relationship. Um, and then when Kay comes face to face with it, she sees that how difficult it truly is because she's dealing with Tom beats her. And then she sees that it's, it's a, like a fear tactic. He's like, he's like, I will kill you if you, if you tell anyone. And that's probably the kinds of things that women who are battered have to deal with. And people say like, mm-hmm. oh, they should just leave. If you're not in that situation, you don't know how hard it could be. There can be other factors. And then now Kay's face to face with it. And, and it's just tougher it's tougher to to do than to just say i i think i think you you hit the nail on the head that i had that same thought this is king highlighting how easy it can be for someone who's on the outside to look at a situation and go oh why don't you just leave his ass you know and she when she's faced with the reality that that bev's been living with it's a whole different story and it's just like you you never know how what the situation is truly like on the inside and it's never as simple as it seems so then uh, speaking of tom rogan he's next and we get him on a plane and he's looking at one of bill's books and he he finds out who's bill bill's wife is audra phillips and um and he gets he gets off the plane and he's in maine and he gets us he gets like basically a, a car that he that has like stolen plates on it and he drives to, and we and he's driving towards a dairy. So much like getting Henry Bowers point of view, we get Tom Rogan's point of view and he's also on his way to dairy. So what did you think about that? We got Henry and we got Tom both both heading there now. So the section is tough to, was tough for me to get through because you the chapter I think is called 3 what is it? 3 unwanted visits. Oh, that's right, yeah. So we're getting 3 visits from characters that we don't necessarily either want to hear from didn't know what they were up to or didn't want them to be getting into those situations. And so we get Henry Bowers is still alive and he's going to be, he's going to be affecting the, the losers clubs plans from here on out, I'm sure. Um, and then we get Tom and T- Tom lands in, in, in Derry or not in Derry. I guess he's landing in, in Boston. Bangor. Okay. Bangor. And then he gets a car and he, so he's headed to Derry. Maybe it was Boston. It was some. It was something pretty close. And and then the next chapter, will, or the next section of this chapter that we get into, is also a character that we don't necessarily want to be doing what she what they're doing. Yeah, it's Audra. She's um she's got she decides to leave and follow Bill. And so she's she is kind of the exception in that she's not you know, 
murderous like the other two um but she's come to find out like to come to bill and and she's an outsider who is heading into dairy so i think we're immediately a little bit worried about her right and then and then in some sort of serendipitous or the opposite of that (laughs) uh moment she stays at the same hotel as tom and we're left knowing that they've parked their cars like nose to nose and you know without even knowing it um and and uh that's where it leaves that part and we get into interlude three the reason that i say it was tough to get through is just because you're watching obstacles form themselves for the losers club in the future or potential pawns yeah. in some sort of game that pennywise can use now because he's just he's getting stronger based on the decision and and audra didn't even realize really why she wanted to go she just knew that and like something was compelling her to go so i guess i think that it is influencing these situa- these these connections these things that are coming together so that he has more firepower i think there's a lot in henry bauer's section that that supports that because we get literally Pennywise talking to him and saying, you need to come back. I need your help or not. I need your help. But he's like, you need to come back. And he does say something curious about how it seems like there's a limitation to what it can do based off of how much the person he's affecting believes in what's going on. And he said, he said to Henry, like, it doesn't matter if they believe in you, you can still get to them because you're like real essentially. So it's it's interesting. It's like he it, Henry presents him a pawn, like you said, that he can maybe use in a way that he wouldn't otherwise with his like conjurings that he seems to do. And the fact that Tom and Audra are so close together just leads me to believe that he could he can start to influence Pennywise can start to influence Tom, and then some sort because I think he, Tom in Tom's POV we even hear him say like if if Phil Denbro needs to be taught a lesson, I'll do that too. And yeah. he learns who Audra is from the book. So they're very cl- in close proximity. So it's just leading to a situation where, where Audra could be used as, as like um, either bait or like some sort of like an obstacle for them in the future. I don't know exactly how she'll be used. but And then Tom is obviously another another wild card who's coming into the mix. Yeah. I mean, and I think the in- one more interesting thing about Tom is that he doesn't appear to have been summoned by Pennywise. He just is coming on his own. Like, he doesn't have a talking moon telling him he needs to come back. You know, he just, he's going on his own. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. Did you draw any comparisons or, or, I mean, him versus Henry Bowers? Like, what did you think about that? Like, are they cut from the same cloth? Like, I don't know. Like I said, I've said before, I think that he, it preys on like the evils of people as well as the fears. So like if somebody is there, he kind of gives them a push. And if they're going to do something, he, he will like influence it or, or push yeah. him over the edge. So I think that there's something to be said for like Henry being a loose cannon and then Tom also being kind of, you know, he's a, he's he's obviously on his way to try to get Bev back. And then if anybody gets in his way, he's going to deal with them as well. So any kind of push will put him over the edge, too. Yeah. Him him with like Pennywise pushing him is a scary prospect. OK, so next up we get interlude three. Um, this, the, the, this is the final part for this uh for this section and it's mike hanlon um learning about what happened to the bradley gang basically the town forms a militia when they learn that this gang is going to buy ammunition and like 60 different guys show up with their like hunting rifles and shotguns and pistols and all this stuff and they like ambush these people this gang of criminals and 
basically just execute him right in the middle of town. And if they, it goes on for like five minutes and just it's like 60 people just shooting every round of ammunition they have essentially into these two cars. And it's brutal. And we hear about like one or two of them, like especially some of the women are trying to surrender even in the middle of it and they just get cut down. And then uh, we learned that they, the next day, the the newspaper publishes that there was a shootout between police and the Bradley gang, and essentially the whole thing gets swept under the rug. And uh, the final bit we learn is that uh, much of the people who were there individually saw a clown uh, also shooting at the car, and using whatever gun they were like whatever gun the the person who saw the clown was using that's who they that's what they saw the clown using i think that the interludes are are showing us parts of dairy's history that's important for us to know like this this was i think it's stated that this is the big conflict or the big like death death toll that ends that that uh this this started it this started the 1930s that ended in the death at the black spot oh okay yeah so the, the so it's either the beginning or the end. There's something huge that mm-hmm. happened. So this was the beginning of it, um, and I think that there's something to be said for the fact that adults in this town seem to have like irrational. They seem to be irrational sometimes. Like you're saying, there was women that were trying to surrender, and they just got this bloodlust, and they were just killing and killing and killing. And I think that had to do with its influence on the adults. And it seems like the adults in the town, no matter what decade, are just kind of oblivious to a lot of the clues and things that are going on and the kids are like pretty perceptive perceptive to it and i maybe because they dealt with it as kids the the losers club is still able to to see pennywise and see some of the things that he's doing the shooting was interesting because like you were saying each each person was holding a certain gun and then if they saw the clown he was holding that same gun i think that just has to do with uh it giving people personalized fears or not necessarily fears but visions i think it has something to do with the fact that like they all remember it differently so it kind of discredits anything that they say it's almost like some sort of like funhouse mirror effect too like it's it's he's like mimicking them and delighting in it and it seems like he loves he kind of loves this kind of stuff something that i was thinking about that we could talk about is that the fact that was so with this huge shootout tons of people died and I think they say that Georgie was the beginning of the 1950, what is it, 56, 58? 58. So the 1958 yeah. killing started because of Georgie. And was Georgie's death that significant that he was the beginning of it? Like, how, was, how, yeah. how, do, you, how do you compare a whole town of people killing, like, a group of people and then one, one kid dying? I don't know how that the cycle is. Yeah. It doesn't seem, maybe it's not just about the number of lives yeah but maybe something about the magnitude of it or the viciousness of it well we know georgie like it started because georgie kind of listened to the clown and like sat there and maybe it's just that the same a similar situation happened maybe the clown popped up uh before they killed the gang and somebody just bought into it and then it kind of brought him to life because they believed that there was a clown in the in the crowd who was shooting with them yeah Okay, so that that um, that ends this part, um, and uh, I'm excited to say we actually have our first bit of feedback. Full disclosure: this is from uh, from Caitlin, and we know her in real life, <laughs> um, but we're very glad that she she sent in uh, this bit of feedback. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. She says, uh, 
You guys told us about dreams of turtles and turtle wax. Any chance we could get a quick summary of all the turtle mentioned so far? And maybe uh, we could each give our theories about what those turtle references mean. I, I don't know if we want to actually summarize them all, but we've seen little things here and there. And I think there might be this implication that we're like leaving a lot of it out, but we're not. <laughs> like, there's really not much described. It's very brief, like mention a tur mention turtle you know and it's like a throwaway almost but i do i, I know more about the turtle i don't want to i would i'm much more interested in what you think about this stuff. yeah i'll speak to it a little bit so it's definitely shown up a lot and even from the first instance that it showed up i thought that it was it was it's not jarring isn't the right word for it but it's it stood out to me so it was something where i was like this is this is important this is something that's going to probably show back up again and I think the first time was just when Georgie was going into the basement, he saw the turtle in reference to the fact that he went to the basement and thought there were creatures down there. And then the turtle was some sort of like light at the end of the tunnel. He like saw it and that's what he became fixated on rather than being so scared of what was going on in the, in the basement. Um, at least so that's what, my, what do you think the turtle is? I don't know. See, that's, that's the, that's <laughs> the crazy part is that we're halfway through the book and I, I can't, I don't know that I can really, it's got to be because I don't know what it is either. So I can't really draw any parallels. <laughs> I can't like it's a spirit. Does it of, seem to be a force for good? Yeah, it, it absolutely is that. It's definitely okay. it's that's definitely something that we as we see it more and more, we realize there's something said about how some force helps Mike throw the tile at that giant mm. bird. There is a mention of I think Ben walked out of the library in this chapter in this section here or in part part three that we're on now. Mm -hmm. He when he walks out, he looks down at the pavement and he sees the turtle for a second, and then realizes that it's just um, it's just uh, some some hopscotch thing that's kind of started to fade away that looked like a turtle. That's right. So mm -hmm. there was a few times that it's just been it's just brought up, and every time, and I think Ben, what was the word that Ben said? He he thought of the turtle and he said a word. I think it's uh, chud or should. I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. So C H U D. There's these words that keep popping up, and there's actually one more that I wanted to mention. Uh, I don't know if this has to do with the turtle, but when Bev was scared and she was running out of the gingerbread house, the, the Hansel and Gretel house, she mentions, she turns back to it and she says that, that someone knows, knows your real name. So Bev says that Grackles knows his real name and, it, and that affects him negatively. Like he, he kind of shrinks back at that, at the mention of that. So I don't know if that's turtle related or not, but that's another thing that we should, that I should have mentioned back in Bev's section. So I, it's definitely a force for good. It shows up kind of when the characters are needing some sort of sign or some sort of like helpful hand it seems like um maybe it's just like the spirit of dairy fighting back against pennywise the clown's evil ways yeah it's some sort of some sort of force like i said i, I don't want to go into it but um i do think we've pretty accurately <laughs> talked about what has happened so far and that it's not much and that it's very vague the turtle, I'm excited to find out more about it because at the mention of it, it basically all I, the things that I know about it right now are it's a force for good. It helps the characters out sometimes and it seems to show up. It, they don't, none of them really remember it. So we, we as the reader don't know it very well either. Yeah. So I guess that's the end of part three. Thank you for that feedback, by the way. Any feedback that anybody wants to send, we would love to, to interact and talk back to you guys about it. Yeah, and we, we might read it on the air like we did with this one. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, you can you can get in contact with us either through our email, which is inktofilm at gmail.com, 
or you can reach out on Facebook or Twitter. And uh, hey, I just got the our Instagram up, which is uh, also Ink to Film. Yeah, we're all over social media, full uh, full court press. We're also going to be on Google Play Music here very very soon. So Android users, be be ready to listen. We should be able to get all the episodes up on there and other on some other uh, platforms we're looking to expand out to. That's true. I'm excited about that. I'm sure I'll post I'll post some stuff on social media about that so that people can find it. But yeah, I uh, I enjoyed talking about that part. I hope you you guys enjoyed listening to it, and I hope you'll come back for part four of five as we start to get into the home stretch here for the novel. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Getting closer and closer to that film, and uh, I think we're almost close to nailing down our next project too. So keep your eyes out for that, just in case the, it hasn't been exactly the project that the uh, novel or film that you were that interested in. Yeah, I think I think. Uh, w- I think it's safe to say we will announce our next project in the next episode. So, yeah, keep an eye out for that. All right, see you next time.